The Life After Football podcast with Richard Lenton is brought to you by the Phoenix Sport and Media Group. Hello everyone, thanks for joining me on Life After Football where we focus on players who've transitioned away from the game. We'll talk about their individual journeys through the highways and byways of the footballing world, the challenges they face when moving into alternative careers and they'll also offer advice to current sports professionals who may not yet have thought about how their working lives will look once the final whistle blows on their careers. It's still something that not enough people think about long term. Now, today's guest is Chris Short, brother of Craig Short, who back in the 1990s was the UK's most expensive defender. Chris enjoyed a solid career himself, playing top-flight football for Notts County, as well as turning out for the likes of Sheffield United and Stoke City, before his playing days were cruelly snatched away from him after collapsing on the field at Craven Cottage, a direct result of a really debilitating muscular condition caused by, of all things, acne medication that he took in his early 20s. Chris talks at length about this. Chris is now head of sports science at Oxford United under Carl Robinson, and this is his life after football. So, Chris, first of all, I didn't realise that you were born in the old West Germany. So, you weren't wearing a German shirt in Italian 90, were you? You know, Richard, it was funny because in 1990, when we played West Germany in the semi final, and I was, out, I was funny enough, I was in Turkey, and I was in a bar with a cousin. And I watched the game and I was, obviously it was a penalty shootout, wasn't it? It was quite tense and it was probably arguably one of the, the best World Cups we've had or the one that I remember the most fondly, that one and also maybe 86. So, no, I wasn't, I wasn't wearing a German shirt that day, but um, it, I, I clearly wanted England to win. But um, I have a f- an affection and fondness for the country, of course, because I was born there and I was, you know, I, I try and go back there as often as I can, you know. So, but yeah, it was... Uh, it was in a small Turkish bar, and uh, no, I was—I think I was um, regular t-shirt, so not a, not a German vest on. But I had a, I had a little sneaky little um, fondness for the country, of course. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because I saw your WhatsApp handle is for era gesundheit, gesundheit. It's it's for your good health, basically. Gesundheit is for your health, so it's like a—I think it's a a gesture you have before meals, you know, for your good health. So. I put it, I put it on there. But I, as I've got older, I've become increasingly more um, keen to go back and explore the country of my birth. You know, my mum spent a lot of time there. My grandma did, my mum's mum, and um, and I was obviously born there myself. So it's all like been big part of my life. You know, I spent the first seven or eight years there with Craig growing up, and then I've had this fascination with the language and the country and the culture. And so, even though I'm English, I there's a little bit of German in me, I think, somewhere where I'm, you know, I, I love the culture. I, love, I do love to go back there as well. Yeah, not a bad mix at all. Now, your brother Craig always says that growing up, you were far more likely to make it as a footballer. So was professional footballer the be-all and end-all in terms of your goal? Or was there a level-headed plan B if it didn't work out? I think it was at the time, you know, I, I, Craig and I, obviously, we came back to England when we were, I was probably seven or eight years old. Craig was maybe a little bit older and I went to a, a school in um, New York or not, not far from Pickering. And, and it was like, at the time, I remember speaking to the career teacher saying, look, I want to be a professional footballer. It was almost like sneered at or laughed at. So I wasn't really given that much encouragement from school, although I think my dad and my mum both secretly thought we had a, a chance. But at, at the time, living in a small... Um, market town that the, the opportunity wasn't there like it was now so it was like it was more of an aspiration or a dream but without any real understanding of how you sort of get there and 
we did get there, but it was more through sort of good fortune than than a planned route, really. Mm. Was there anything else that you had in mind that you could potentially do if it didn't work out? Um, I think one of the routes was, I think we discussed, Craig and I were maybe down the PE teacher route or maybe something physical, even the army was maybe, um, you know, a bit of an interest to us, to us both, um, something physical. Um, but, you know, you know, we weren't great academics at school, so we, we were just like killing time until something came, came upon. And I know Craig went on to start in the bank and then just before I sort of left school, this, this opportunity came along to, to pursue the football with, with, with Neil. So um, it was... Um, yeah, it was certainly well before the academy days and, and, and it was, like I say, more good fortune than anything planned, I, I guess. But there was certainly a desire if we had the opportunity. Yeah, what a great, what a great um, uh, way of life it would be if, if you were good enough. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Neil. Of course, that's Neil Warnock. He was your manager at Scarborough. You joined as a teenager. How important was he in terms of your development and how important is mentoring at that kind of age? Yeah, Richard, I mean, he's a fellow that we, Craig and I both hold a lot of huge regard for, you know, without him, there's an argument that we, we were never to become professional footballers and never have the, the careers we've, we've had. So he spotted us at a young age and gave us an opportunity. Um, it's a strange one, really, because you don't really get to know Neil. We've known him well for maybe what, over 30 years, but you don't get that particularly close with him. But there's a huge respect from, you know, from Craig and myself and hopefully the other way around. And he's given me jobs um in the sports science and fitness in the world since i've been you know finished playing so um he's a he's a person who's probably criticized for the pe from people who don't actually know him if you've worked for him and when you've played for him then you know generally you, you have a huge amount of respect for the fella and, and that's still prevalent to this day and we still keep in touch occasionally um yeah so we owe a huge debt to neil and and you know we just hope that we've paid him back in in some ways with our performances or whether our uh, work for him once we we stopped playing. Mm. And of course you followed him to Notts County as well, who at that stage were just about to get into the top flight. But at that stage of your life, late teens, early twenties, as a professional footballer, does anyone ever speak to you about your post-playing days? And if they did, would you have been practical enough and sensible enough at that age to start planning for the day when the whistle blew on your footballing days? I think the answer, Richard, that is no, no, no one really sort of gave us much um, information out there. The PFA were, you know, there's, there's nothing like the support that young players get today, which is, which is, um, which is great for them. Um, and, you know, as a 19, 20 year old kid, you, you don't really think about when you're 34, 35, that's like, a, that was a, a light years away and you just enjoyed doing something that you, that you, you love doing and being privileged to, to follow your, your dream as a kid. So, I certainly didn't think even think about the future until you know probably started things started to go wrong or you started to creep up to the late twenties where wait there I'm, I should start doing something here so um, there were various courses that the PFA would offer but you know I look back and think maybe it was an opportunity where I could have done more in my time outside of the game you know and uh, that's my advice to people now is to try and you know look at the opportunities that there are because it does come around very quickly end of your career and hopefully you've got a long life after that to to pursue another 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 career if, if you will and even though professional footballers certainly at the top level probably train more than they did back in the day 30 years ago footballers have still got time on the hands to potentially pursue other qualifications and other interests and you know some of the european players like one matter have got degrees that they've done in their own time but do you think clubs 
need to push young players more? And do you think they do push players more? Because you, you are involved with professional football still as a sports scientist, which we'll come on later, come on to later. Do you think they do a little bit more now? I think they do, Richard, yeah. I think there's a lot, certainly at academy level, there's a huge um, emphasis now on education and probably the realisation that even when you're an academy player or a young professional, you know, you're not guaranteed to make a long, um, have, a, have a long and um, successful, or certainly financially successful career. So um, I don't get involved with that myself, but I know people who work in the academy and work in the education department that's linked with it. I still think they can do more. Um, I still think that players... Um, once they finish their their, their day, um, can you know sit aside and say, right, well, I, I want to study a language, I want to study an instrument, I want to study a degree, like you, you mentioned there, and um, it's something that I really wish I'd had the opportunity to do so beforehand, and maybe had the the foresight to say, you know, wait there, I've got three hours in the afternoon spare here, and it's only until I finished that I thought, you know what, it, it was wasted, it was wasted time. I'd go home and I might sleep for an hour because I was. I'd, I'd, I'd worked hard in the day physically, but mentally I did nothing to actually improve my chances of a, of a career when I, when I finished playing. And it was, um, yeah, that would, be, that would be my biggest regret probably, yeah. Yeah, and I suppose that time on your hands, I mean, no wonder lads were going down the pub in the betting shop back in the day. Well, it was, it was the pub or it was the golf or it was, the, you know, I remember in Los County we'd go to the, the dogs and the greyhounds and stuff like that and, and, and just be, you know, having a bit of extra cash in your, in your, in your pocket for the first time in your life being with lads who were similarly minded to yourselves and it was, you were away from home for the first time. So it was, it was a socially great time, but, um, you know, probably didn't use it efficiently enough at all. Certainly I, I didn't. And I think a lot of people are the same, but now it has improved for sure. Yeah. But, um, I, I, I would, I would really push that home to people, you know, what, uh, you know, if you've got one, one hour a day, a spare hour, you can do so much with that time. Yeah. 20 years old, you joined Manchester United on loan. How did that come about? <laughs> oh, man. That's something I get at Oxford now. I get a lot of stick from the lads, you know. So I'm a, I'm a young kid. I go from a Division 4 club to, to Manchester United on, on loan. You know, it's like no one goes to Manchester United on loan, not from a club like that. But it was almost like we played Chelsea in the League Cup and I was a, a right-back at Notts County coming through. And then... Um, we drew away at Stamford Bridge and beat them at home. And the second leg, I, I did okay. I had a reasonably good game. And I remember Dennis Law was commentating on the game. And whether Dennis had any sort of still connections with United because of his, you know, his, his playing career there. And also there was, a, there was a chap who was scouting for Manchester United. Um, it was Colin Appleton, I think. But my name was linked with them and about that they'd come to watch me on a few occasions. And anyway, at the end of that season... Um, they offered me to go through to United and I trained with them and I played in a few reserve games. I went to Germany, funnily enough, to play in a, a couple of tournaments. And uh, and that was the crop of people like Lee Martin and Lee Sharp and Mark Bosnich and Russell Beersmore, that sort of group of young young players coming through. And um, so I spent a few months there, maybe three or four months. And But it was one of those where, you know, if United wanted to buy you, there was no ifs and buts. You, if you were good enough, they would have bought you. There's no, there's nothing to sort of... Um, there's, there's no discussion needed and clearly there was they had reservations about me as a player and it, it never see, it never came to fruition so at one stage I thought I was going to go there uh, and, and in the end they I didn't do and my career went elsewhere but it was a good experience you know to play uh, to you know and, and to train and work with, with those players and uh, 
I guess it stood me in good stead. But it was a, it was a frustrating time. I was so excited, thinking I've got a chance, and at the end, you know, probably not good enough, and it, it didn't it didn't come off. But it sounds like you took it in your stride that you weren't completely daunted by the experience. I remember turning up at the Old Cliff training ground, and uh, I had an old mini metro and uh, parking next to. I think Mark Hughes or Brian Robson, they must have had a big Mercedes and a big Porsche. And I remember my mum, bless her, she, she'd packed me out this massive big pack out, you know, which, it was, which is on the spare seat next to me. And I thought, you know, what the hell am I doing here? You know, a young kid from, from Scarborough, driven across the Pennines to, to Manchester. And I thought, well, I'm here now, so um, you, you've got to give it a go. And I was, I'm quite a competitive person in a quiet way. And so I was nervous, but I thought, well, Let's let's give it your best shot and see where see where it leads you to. But uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't to be. But it was a huge huge step and a big golf. But yeah, it was. Uh, I get ribbed from the lads at, at work now. You know, the older pros saying, "Well, that's a hell of a move, that shorty, yeah, a low move." But yeah, it, it didn't come off. And you know, looking back, it was. Um, if I was good enough, they would have been certainly they would have they would have taken me uh, on a permanent deal. You know. Yeah. But you did play top flight football under Neil Warnock, who you've mentioned at Notts County. What was the highlight or kind of best memories of being a top flight, top flight player? Or was it just the fact that you were a top flight player? Um, I mean, look, obviously, it was, it's the Premier League now and the game has changed dramatically, as we all know, you know, with the, the stadium and the facilities and the coverage and all the things that go with it. But, you know, having, OK, I spent only one year in the top flight, so it was a, it was a great experience and it was a, a proud moment for myself and obviously for my family. Um, unfortunately, that year, the year we went up, we, we came back down. But we, it was, we acquitted ourselves reasonably well in certain games. We made it difficult. I remember we played Man United at home and we drew one each. Maybe we should have beaten them. Um, and then to be playing alongside my brother um, was, was great. And, and to play places like White Hart Lane at Goodison Park, you know, and it was a, it was a good experience, you know. Um, and probably as a young kid, you don't you don't really appreciate it really at the time it's you take it in your stride to an extent as you get older you probably look back and think oh well you know I can't have been that bad or did okay but um sadly I, I never got the chance to play back in the, in the top flight again but yeah at least uh, I, I did it for a year and it was uh it was a competitive uh environment obviously a huge huge step up from from the from the league below at, at the time and uh, certainly from 18 months previously being a young kid at Scarborough so yeah, it was a, it was, it was a, it was a good time. Yeah, it was a good time. Yeah. And I think you had five good years at Notts County, three good years at Sheffield United, and then you joined Stoke City. I think you would have been twenty-seven, twenty-eight at this point. So mm. September the eighth, nineteen ninety-eight, you played really well for Stoke. I think as an attacking fullback. But tell us what happened in that game against Fulham at Craven Cottage. Well, it's a long, it's a long route, Richard. Even before then, you know, there's a, a lot had happened previously. So, I mean, to, to cut a very long and laborious story um, short, if I can, I'd, I'd, as a kid, I'd, I'd suffered with really terrible skin problems, and and I feel quite strongly about the thing I'm going to say is, um, as a youngster growing up, you you you're very self-conscious. You go to different different clubs, and it's uh, it, it really affected me, my mental state. You know, I was very self-conscious, very shy. Um, and then after a long period of time, I was given a drug, a very powerful drug to try and um, heal the condition, which eventually it did do. But um, it caused me uh, a serious um, an issue. And just going back to you, the situation there. So I played in the game at Craven Cottage for Stoke and I, I remember collapsing in the game. Um, and I collapsed with serious muscle pain and weakness. 
and um, it was something I had at Notts County years before and I was trying to manage the condition with painkillers and certain diets and drugs and did a lot of research as a, as a young youngster myself this is even before sort of the the um, the information that you could get on the website so I was going to libraries and um, uh, looking back now the, the, the drug I took um, I've been told since that it effectively finished my career as a as a 28 year old but even before it started at 22 23 the problems were starting to show then um, so it was a really really difficult time and yeah the, the game at Craven Cottage I think we were top actually the Stoke under Brian Little I was playing wing back and then I knew something was really quite not not right and I collapsed in the game and and that was really the end of it really I tried to come back after that but I was never the same and uh, yeah, and I spent a lot of years trying to work out what it was, and eventually I got there in the end. But my, my career was finished, and it was a it was a shame. But um, it was a distressing time because it was something that you couldn't actually see. There was something clearly going on wrong with my body, and as at the time my my game was based on speed and fitness and power, and it was something I couldn't do, and uh, it was so frustrating. And and when I packed in at the end, as as frustrated as I was, it was almost like a relief because I didn't have the pain anymore, and it was. Uh, it lasted about 15 years, which was, which, was, which was difficult, yeah. So it was physical side effects brought on by the use of the drug as a youngster, or did you carry on taking it? Yeah, so I took the drug, which when I was 20, 21. Um, and then within six months of finishing the course, I started to get symptoms, um, which were side effects, which I'd been explained, which, which you could get, you know, more, more sort of aesthetic side effects, you know, change of your hair, uh, hair texture, um, dry skin, things that, okay, I, I could deal with that. Um, the side effects I wasn't told was that it can cause serious muscle weakness and pain in athletes. And I think since then, the information is clearly out there that this is, this is one side effect that you've got to be mindful of. Now, I wasn't told that. And they were the very things that caused, uh, affected me in a, in a very serious way. I, mean, I got to the point where I couldn't get up the stairs without having excruciating pain in my, in my, in my, my quads and my, my arms. Um, and, you know, as, a, as an attacking fullback, that's not the sort of thing you need. <laughs> you know, so uh, it was, yeah, it was so difficult to manage. And I, 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 it sort of led me down the route of sports science in a weird way because I wanted to find out what was going wrong with me. And um, no one could pinpoint it until, you know, many, many years later. And by that time, I couldn't go back on um, an insurance claim because um, you had to prove that it, it affected you within a certain period of time. So, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was really difficult. Yeah, and my advice, and I've given some advice to certain people, in the, is please be really careful. If you're going to take this drug, just be mindful. This, this, this can cause the issues that, that it finished me with. You know, and it, it's, uh, I think people need to be aware of that, yeah. So the drug's still around? And people are still taking it. Yeah, the drug is still around, Richard. Yeah, it's used widely by dermatologists. Um, I'm a big, I'm a what's the word I'm after now? I, I'm a big um, believer in it should be, it should be publicised more. You know, clearly people now, particularly nowadays, it, how people look and how they feel is is a huge thing, and certainly with mental health, it can have a detrimental effect on you on your well being. And I, I understand why people want to have good skin. I I, I get that, um, but. Um, when I took the drug, it definitely wasn't explained to me the, the side effects, and I, f I felt, and I still do feel really strongly about it. it finished my career, it, it I probably contributed to the breaking down of my marriage as well. And um, it's, uh, yeah, it was, it was it was tough. And so I, I think it's 
it's it's really crucial that people hopefully and if i could help one person uh, in the future then it would be it, be, it would be something but um yeah it's um I, I i mean i think i the last time i counted was about 41 or 42 different people i went to see to try and get a um a, an answer and mm. i went to i mean i was lucky my family helped me financially i know craig did i flew out to canada um, went into all places all over the UK, muscle biopsies and every single test going potentially that could they, and they couldn't find out what it was until probably well like well after I collapsed and it was too late. So yeah. Mm. But so and I look back and thinking there were games I shouldn't have really been on the pitch really. Um, and as a professional footballer, most players I think get nervous before the game if they don't they're either very lucky or they they're probably not telling you the truth i certainly got nervous because i wanted to perform and i wanted to play well and i had this extra burden of right um i've got to deal with this pain here and i've got to deal with it um the, as best i can and some days were better than others which is frustrating it's very intermittent and some days it was it was almost so bad that I, you know i i, I couldn't i shouldn't have, yeah i shouldn't have, i shouldn't even got through the warm-up never mind playing the game so that's my excuse for my poor performances at the end of my career because it was like I physically couldn't get through it anymore. It was so hard. So but this difficult. this horrible situation led you into your post-playing career inadvertently, though, uh, as a sports scientist. I mean, how soon from retiring from football were you able to actively pursue that, you know, considering that you were still struggling so badly physically? Well, I think once I packed in, it was it, it was almost like a big relief because I'd, I'd, I'd had so much pain and so much um, stress with dealing with it with, with a condition that no one could really label. So when I packed in initially, it was like, I'm going to have a couple of years off here. I'm going to go traveling and, and something I love doing. And it's only when I came back, I thought, well, I need to sort of pursue something else. And going back to when we first had the conversation where... I wish I had studied when I was playing. I, I, obviously, I didn't do. So I went into studying about physiology and then, you know, uh, the human body, and then obviously a degree. And, and, and that led me in a, in a route into, to, into human performance because of what I've probably been through myself in, in a way helped me in, in, in some, some respects. So it was, it was a couple of years, at least, after I packed in playing before I, um, before I went down that route, yeah. yeah. And what, what was it like going back into a classroom and, and where did you study? Yeah, I mean, initially I, I did I did some uh, soft tissue therapy diplomas. Um, I got into that, and then I um, I wanted to pursue that. I had a, I had a, an interest in human performance and what the body can and can't do. Um, and I went to Manchester to the university there, studied there for five years, and then. But yeah, I mean, I was probably the first only person in the classroom with a, still with a, a pen and a piece of paper. You know, they, everyone else was getting into computers and laptops, so I was one of the older people studying but um i found it really really interesting and very re rewarding um but i wasn't an academic so i found it difficult but um i was determined and i i eventually got through it in the end and i was able to come out and, and start looking at jobs in, in the football world which i was kind of used to anyway which which always helps yeah yeah and having those contacts but were you able to fully embrace university life george it was one of those where it, it, it was i had because i had to work still um um the, uh, the effects of a, of a divorce and not having a, a great career financially, I couldn't, I couldn't afford to, uh, uh, to go full-time as a student. So I did part-time um, studies and I took it over a longer period of time. So there were residentials and there were sort of um, nights out, which I clearly enjoyed, but I wasn't based in Manchester. I was in and out for maybe a few weeks of the year, you know, so I was like um, a part-time student, if you will. But yeah, I certainly enjoyed it. It was good. And 
Um, I would have liked to have done it properly if, if that was, uh, if, if I could, but, uh, you know, under, unfortunately circumstances were against me. So how long in terms of years did it take from start to finish to qualify? I did five years, Richard, in total. Um, okay. And then obviously I was working at the same time. Um, so I was getting some practical experience, but I was also obviously doing the, the academic side of things. And then mm. came, out the, came out with a, with a degree in sports science and biomechanics and then gotcha. pursued, the, pursued that you know, route in, in clubs. And I was lucky because I knew a lot of people in the game and probably I got jobs because of who, who I was in terms of they knew me more more than my maybe my qualifications or my um my expertise and i've certainly developed and learned as i've as i've gone along probably more in an applied way more than an academic way really okay and did you time the transition right in terms of professional football embracing sports science or did you find that clubs were still a bit reluctant to go new school um, I certainly think now that it's been a huge, a huge thing, which is now where you know, you'll know yourself, dealing with players and, and speaking to people where the sports science side of things is absolutely, is a huge part of club's revenue now. And it's, it's really, it's really impressive. Um, I came in, I, I sort of came into it just at the end of like heart rate monitors and then GPS coming into the last 10, 12 years. So, and then since then it's, it's gone to a different level altogether. So I've seen a huge, a huge, um, a change in just some of the things people use to monitor athletes but also the number of people in a, a football club in terms of staff you know so yeah I came into it just probably two or three years into the actual transition from going like quite basic to like just taking a taking a completely different level altogether you know so I've learned a lot as I've gone along so it's been really it's been quite a uh, an interesting journey for me really. And do you still find any resistance to it? I remember talking to, I'm not going to mention his name actually, but um, a, a guy I know who was coaching at Stoke's first team level a few years ago. And he was saying that the players were all wearing the heart rate monitors during training. But some of the very elder first team pros who wanted to duck out of training were making sure that they were getting their heart rate into the red zone as soon as possible so that they were being dragged away from training so they could put the feet up. So do you still get a little bit of resistance? You, you, yeah, you, you do. And I think probably by the, the older lads, and I, I sort of gravitate towards the older players now because they're with closer in age, even though I'm, I'm significantly older than them. Um, and you'll see the old tricks of, you know, what players trying to do to sort of decrease the, 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 the session. Um, and it does bring about a bit of humour and a bit of conversation. And it does sort of uh, develop, relationships because you grow like I say you gravitate towards those players um I do I, I still do believe despite the the advances and all the uh, scientific um information that people get people are still afraid to to you to to use their instincts you know or some common sense there's there's a there's some really very very skilled people out there in in professional uh, sport professional football as I as I know but um sometimes I I, I I'm I'm not staggered, but I'm. I look back and thinking, wow, people get obsessed with data and numbers and things like that, which is fine. But I just do think that you have to put it in context with actually what you are, you what you are actually seeing. And some statements I hear from people are thinking, wow, it's quite incredible, really. You know that people can actually predict things or that they're going to forecast this is going to happen. Yet, if they were working, if they were that good, they would be working at the very, very, very highest level. So it's. Um, yeah, it's gone 
a, a really high level, but mm. I still believe there should be more of a human element involved where people can actually interact with people. That, you know what? Instead of saying, looking at a screen or the laptop or loads and loads of data, which is vitally important, try and get an, an understanding by actually speaking to people and forming relationships because we're in a world now where we're governed by technology and we're governed by phones and all sorts of apps. And yet sometimes you do lose that human touch and that human involvement sometimes. Mm. But presumably at times you would have to advise the first team manager that a player maybe is struggling a little bit and maybe they shouldn't play. I think, I think it depends, you know, on, on, the, on the manager you work for. And I've been really, really lucky, really lucky. Um, I've worked for, and this is my 19th club now, which is like, I'm, uh, I've got to keep that quiet, but yeah, it's, um, as a player, and as a member of staff. And I think I've worked for well over 40 or 50 different managers or played for them. And I think it depends on your relationship with that manager. So at the moment, I'm working with Carl Robinson, who's been fantastic to me. Um, he's given me such a huge input. And, and I feel like I can speak to him openly and give him my opinion. And, he, and he's, he's very receptive. He's very progressive and he's very forward thinking. Other managers probably aren't so much, aren't, aren't too interested. Um, you know, um, so I think it depends on the person you're working with. Um, like I work with Neil, Neil Warnock. I've worked with some really good people, Neil Lennon and Dougie Friedman and Gary Bowie, Stuart McCall. Everyone's got their own strengths and weaknesses. Um, you know, I remember Neil, Neil Lennon. You know, I like Lenny. He was, um, was he a good player. He had a really well-established playing career himself. He's done very, very well with, with Celtic. And he came to Bolton during a period which was difficult off the field. And I remember I was working with a team of... Um, sports sciences and people were very very skilled and they were producing loads and loads of data and one particular player was his data was was either very high or very low and the lad i worked with went in to see lenny and uh, said look i don't think you should play tomorrow you know but i didn't know this was happening <laughs> and i and then i heard the uh, the aftermath of what happened i think lenny lost his lost his lost his temper you know and so you know, you've got to pick and you've got to pick and choose when you actually, you know, clearly the best player. If he's half fit, he generally starts the game because you need to win games. You know, so um, yeah, it, it depends on who you're working with. Mm. Like I say, Lenny was really, really good, but you had to pick. You pick and choose your moments with him, um, give the information that you probably you needed, and then back away. And then, but with Carl, it's a full engaged conversation, and he's he's got a good, really good understanding of sports science, and he's interested in it as well. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've been I've been lucky, you know, and Sven at Leicester worked with him, who's a, who's a lovely fellow as well. So, um, and I've learned from all of them. Mm. So, um, which has been which, which has been great. It's one of the benefits of being moved on in the football world, or you move on yourself, is that you actually work with lots of different people, and you do learn from what you, you learn from them. You know, Neil Lennon was a he was a brilliant speaker before games, and so was Neil Warnock, um, and then other people have different strengths as well. Um, so. It was. Uh, it's been good. Yeah, it's been. It's been um, rewarding. Yeah, and it's obviously not a one-size-fits-all approach uh, for clubs at different levels because you've been fitness coach, a sports master, strength conditioning coach. Is your specific role budget-related as much as anything? And are you sometimes a one-man band and sometimes part of a team? Obviously, the higher up you go, there's a greater budget for for people. So, I mean, I think at Bolton, I was working in a department. There might have been 15 people in the sports science department. So, um, which is great. And, and you can get more information. You can do more things with the players. But sometimes you've got 15 people with an opinion. You've got 15 lots of data and information coming in at the manager and at the coaches. And sometimes you think, wait there, let's just filter some of this out and say, right, the manager probably has got 
115 things to do that morning before training or even after training and you might have to give, give them information that you have to make a quick decision upon you know so sometimes less is more sometimes um I've also worked at clubs when I've done everything from the drinks to the, the sports science to the fitness and it's been really chaotic. And therefore you've got to like, you spread yourself so thin that potentially, you know, you can't really make such an impression because you've got so many things to do. So there is a happy medium. Um, I think there are too many people in, in certain clubs. I, I do believe that. Um, it's only my opinion. Um, and, and, and you've almost got people trying to justify their jobs by producing these huge elaborate documents where really, sometimes the manager doesn't really have enough time to actually sit down and read it and then make an informed decision based on the information you're giving him. So, um, yeah, there's got to be, okay, if you haven't got enough staff, then clearly it's, it, it's, it's impossible to do your job properly. And I'm very lucky at Oxford. There's quite a few people in the department. I work with a really good guy called Dwayne and, and Amy's a physio and we've got good people around us where we, we, um, you know, we work with Carl, and you know, closely, and obviously my brother's there now as well. So it works really well. It works really yeah. well, and I'm, I'm 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 lucky. And you're head of sports science at Oxford. So what would be a typical day, a typical training day for you? Um, so if it was like, uh, particularly say like a Tuesday would be a busy day, Richard, where you you've got maybe small groups. And now with the COVID thing, we've got to be a bit more savvy. Where we've got to start making the groups smaller. And I think the biggest thing is 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 um, organisation. So players will come in and they'll do various tests before training. Obviously, most people they'll do a hydration test. They'll do some um, testing based on where they're at, really. So if they play the game, clearly it'd be more recovery based, and then they'll have different protocols for that. If they haven't played for a period of time, you can do some testing with them. So you might want to do some blood lactates just to see what the lactate is, where they are aerobically. You might then have a small group in the gym. You might have a smaller group outside. You might have a group off-site and maybe doing a recovery session. So that's when the the staff or more staff is, is helpful. And then obviously you'll have a the session outside. Um, you may then have a recovery session after that session. Then you may have some extra individual stuff in the afternoon. And then you'll go through all the data and you'll analyse the data and make some observations and then see where they fit in relation to everybody else. And ideally, it's the people who aren't playing are the ones that you need to sort of probably look at more than probably the lads who are playing on a Saturday, Tuesday basis because potentially they, they play, they recover, they play, recover. And there's not a huge amount you can really do with them. It's really the ones who are, you know, you know, substitutes or ones who are, you know, even in the squad and, you know, mentally they might be frustrated. But clearly you've got to try and get some work into them because when they do, there's an opportunity, they need to be ready. And that's probably the biggest challenge. So... Even though you've got a squad of 20, 20 players, you might have four or five different groups within that 20, and it's how you manage that, really. And uh, I think most people will, will, would, would say the same as well. And presumably you work closely with injured players and on the rehab, etc. Yeah, I've enjoyed that. You know, so here we have the injured player. They'll go through the recovery situation, either you know, post-op stuff with the physios, and they'll come to a certain stage, and then I'll, I myself will take over, or Dwayne, my colleague, and then we'll sort of have a period of time between being fit to train to being ready to, to go back into training, you know. So, um, and that would depend on the nature of their injury and how long they've been out for as well. So, well, we, we're quite good on testing at Oxford. There's a, several tests that we do with the players and we can sort of gauge where they're at. Um, and generally, the, the injury record has been pretty good based on all the things that everyone does at the club, not, not just me. There's loads of people involved. And Carl's good. He's receptive to that, and he's, he he buys into that, and it makes a big difference, a big big help. So um, yeah, it, it, it would depend very much individually on that player and 
how long he's been out for us, really. Mm. And just finally then, where do you think the world of sports science is heading? Are there going to be any new developments? I remember a couple of years ago, I was working for a, a company who were developing a smart insole, which they were hoping would be a predictor of injuries moving forward. I think it's still moving on, but is that a possibility, do you think? And are there any other advances that you can see coming into fruition? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I, I think the biggest thing is probably uh, like that. If you've got a tool that you can predict injury, then that's a massive advantage. You know, clearly GPS is, 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 is very, very good. And to an extent, it's very reactive. You, you react on base, basically what, what, what a player has done or what he potentially has done over a period of time. Something like that. I've not heard of that one myself, but um, that would, I would suggest, be the, 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 the biggest thing moving forward. Where you, there are certain things that you can use um, that would predict things. I know a lot of clubs use heart rate variability. I know a lot of clubs use um, other, other measuring tools to predict sort of performance. Um, that would be a way forward. I've, I've seen in Germany, actually, certain clubs are wearing, I'm back to the heart rate thing, where, where there's a small device in the thumb and they'll pick up heart rates from there because... I know a lot of the clubs who have one heart race wear the belts around the, 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 the chest. And so many times you see belts come in off or players ripping them off in frustration. It's quite a, an intrusive bit of kit where if you've got something like quite small like you can just fit on your thumb or something like that or even on your toe, picks up a pulse, then um, that's one example of maybe the way it's, the way it's developing. I, I still think the biggest thing is, is, is mentality. I think it's a huge thing now with certainly in, in the world now we live in with um, people's... Um, mental state and mental well-being why is it that some certain players feel better on certain days and not others and is it is it their levels of stress or is it the mentality or is it you know what they've eaten over a period of time so I, I, I certainly think food's a huge huge thing as well and it's one thing I I, I saw benefits with with all my problems the only, the only actually relief I got from my the pain I had was apart from taking uh, drugs to, uh, to, to stop the pain was um you know the the nutritional side and that was a massive a massive thing for me so i think nutrition and certainly the mentality is probably the two biggest things now in in professional football uh, in my opinion yeah how did you how did you change your diet then what did you embrace well so i mean again this this was well before the internet so it was like unfortunately i didn't have all the information there but i, I researched and read um you know relentlessly and i i, I cut out basically i cut out all sugar I cut out all alcohol. I cut out everything that was processed, and I went really clean. I cut out, I cut out gluten, any any inflammatory process caused by certain foods. I cut out, and it did prolong my, my career by five or six years. Without without that, I wouldn't have never. I mean, I, I got the pains when I was twenty one, twenty two, and I packed in when I was twenty eight, twenty nine. And in that year, for that six year period, I was on I was on a diet for that for that long year, and I, I it almost became an obsession, really. And it and it it's filtered down into my life now, where food is still a a big part of 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 me, and it's kind of as a a remnant of what happened when I played. But I did, I did think it definitely helped. Um, so it was a pretty mundane, boring monk-like existence, but it certainly improved my performance, and I could get back on the football pitch. Um, but without that, there was I, I wasn't seeing anything. I mean, I, for a year and a half, I could hardly get up the stairs. So. Um, yeah, I, I I believed in that, and I still do, and I think it's a, you know, big part of people's lives. Not interested in professional sport, but certainly with the COVID situation now, where you've got to take some sort of responsibility for your own well-being and your own immune system. Yeah, and is it something that you have an input in, with 
professional football clubs, the diet side as well as the sports science side? Is it all interlinked or do you have separate dietitians, etc.? Well, we're, look, we're lucky, like most clubs, we have, a, we have a very good nutritionist called Jasmine. She comes in and she works closely with the players and you will get players now who are vegan. You'll get players who are potentially uh, have food sensitivities or they have intolerances. So they will work individually with, with Jazz as well and she'll recommend some supplementation as well. It's all now governed by um, informed sport. So you've got to take a product that is actually batch tested again, which is a bit of a challenge. But um, and I think a lot of players try and take something that will actually give them the magic bullet and it's not that easy you know you can't say i'm gonna take this today i'm gonna to feel a million dollars but it doesn't always it's not always that clear cut but um you know the the, the supplementation side i mean the things like nutritional supplements i was really really big on well before it was quite popular really because i did have a i did believe in it quite strongly because i, I saw huge improvements with myself mm. um and i think you know the information is there for players now and it's it's, it's great that they can have that help because i, I didn't have it Great stuff. So no bangers and mash at Oxford. <laughs> Thanks ever so much for your time, Chris. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Richard, for your time. And you, you take care and um, hopefully we'll, we'll speak soon. But uh, great to speak to you. Great to talk to Chris. And what I didn't mention to him is that I also studied sports science, but unlike him, I did fully immerse myself into university life, and so the three-year course was nothing but a blur, I'm afraid. Now, I'm sure professional athletes who are thinking of a sports science career will take things far more seriously than I did and heed Chris's words of wisdom. And for sports people out there who do want advice on alternative careers as well as everything else that a sportsman or woman should be on top of, from financial affairs to legal advice, buying property, even security then I'd highly recommend our podcast sponsors, the Phoenix Sport and Media Group. Thanks once again for joining me on Life After Football. See you soon. The Phoenix Sport and Media Group provide honest and trustworthy professional advice and business solutions to the sports and media industry. For more information, visit www psm-group.co.uk